You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, I'm Tom Wally and I'm with Lizzie Banks. Lizzie, the clock is ticking, tick, 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 tick. It's almost time to race, to do an actual race. <gasps> oh, hello, Tom. I... I am so excited. I'm a little bit terrified. No, I'm not. Not really. I'm a little bit terrified, but um, so excited. Yeah, welcome to 2022. All new Lizzie Banks version two back on the scene in about one month's time. I've been, uh, as, a, yeah, as you, you know, read all the cycling uh, news websites and stuff like that. A lot of team previews at the moment. And whenever they mention uh, what had, what, let me get your team name right. Team Tibco EF. Oh, come on, Tom. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. Maybe you just want to T- give my team more airtime. Teach team me. EF Education Tibco SVB. Whenever I see the uh, previews for your team, it's always like, you know, the big news, new transfer, Liz- Lizzie, you know, leading the team. No pressure there at all, Lizzie. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? I, I, always, um, I always find it funny reading about yourself because I guess you have um, you have one view of kind of, what you do in your life and you kind of sometimes forget things that you do in your life and um yeah you have a very different you see yourself in a very different way to the way other people see you so it's always funny uh reading about yourself especially when people say you're going to be a leader when you haven't raced for um a year which I find hilarious but no it's it's really exciting actually I'm really looking forward to it and I feel no pressure um internally from myself and no pressure from the team it's really kind of we know it might take a while, see how it goes. Um, and basically, you know, I'd like to be fit at a certain point. You know, I have a certain number of race, certain races that I think that I will be where I expect to be by this point. But if it happens earlier, that's great. And if it happens later, that's just the way it is. We know that I've had a year off and it's just about kind of being patient, which is, you know, the one thing that from from learning to live with and uh and um recover from a concussion is one thing that you do learn learn to manage well is is having having patience so yeah looking forward so, to it so we think you're going to start at valencia can we talk about that yeah i'm not sure if i'm allowed to tell anybody that but yeah i think <laughs> i'm gonna <laughs> so yeah the team will be racing uh Mana valenciana which is the 17th till the 20th of february and the lineup will be um Decided at team camp, which is beginning of first two weeks of Feb. So, uh, but I, I think I'll probably be racing there more likely than not. So it's exciting. It's a really nice place to start the season. I started there in 2019 and 2020. And it's um good place to start with, you know, hopefully good weather and uh, just get a few racing kilometers in the legs before, before Omloop and Strada and the rest of the spring classics kick off. How do you think you'll feel? Oh, here's a question. How do you think you'll feel the night before the first day of that race and the night after the first day of that race? Well, I'm pretty sure I'll be completely wrecked uh, the night after the first day of the race. Um, and I don't think I'll be particularly nervous. I, I, I really feel very chilled about the situation. I think that it's interesting thing, actually. Recovering from the concussion has changed my mindset about a lot of things um and we talked about this before but I spent a lot of time doing meditation um learning to be patient because I just had to be um 
I'm another well, here's, year here's older question, as well. So, you mentioned meditation because you, you mentioned that a while back. Have you some of these things that you use to cope with the concussion? Have you kept? Yeah, you've kept it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's something I continue to practice, and I think that it's um, it's really important for you know this busy world that we live in, where you're always on, especially as a as a professional athlete, because you're, you kind of work 24 seven, you know, if you're doing social media posts, it's work. You might answer, be answering emails first thing in the morning, last thing at night, you're riding, you've got to fit in your riding, you've got to fit in going to the gym, podcasts, media requests, and it, it, it can be pretty nonstop. It's not like an office job where, you know, you can switch up at, off at half past five and six o'clock and go and spend time with the family. Um, you have to be, quite careful about your time and your screen time and um, giving yourself space. And I think that's that's something that I've learned to prioritise is that I always had balance in my life, but I think I've made it a priority now. I've been doing a little bit of a meditation myself, Lizzie. Here, here's, what, here's, here's my tip for you. That's why you're have, so chilled today, Tom. That's why I'm so chilled. Have you ever tried, have you ever tried, this is a, this is a real aside, but have you ever tried a Shakti mat? I I actually have seen them. So this is this is great. This is my tech, new thing. This is it? my new thing. The Shakti mat. Well, you have I, to tell me if they're any good. So, but I, let's, well, let's, I don't know if it's improved my cycling, but I do like it. Let's describe what it is first. It's basically a, a yoga mat with thousands of um, little spikes in 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 the base of the mat, so that you lie on it, and um, these these spikes kind of imprint into your body. Uh, but tell 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 us, Tom. That's it. What's it's, it like? It's like a, well, it's basically like a bed of nails. I mean, at first, it's like, first I've got to say it's quite uncomfortable, quite painful. But once you've sort of got through that initial five minutes, it does eventually start to become quite relaxing and, and pleasant. When when you get off, the uh, the feeling on your back is a little bit. It's it's akin to it looks like bad sunburn when you get off. <laughs> I've got to say, it looks like really bad sunburn. And it, it, it but it does like it, you you become very very aware much more aware than you normally are of your entire back because it's just had all this this stimulation um yeah i, I like so what was so my routine this is to- i didn't plan to talk about this but my routine <laughs> is you know a bit of yoga followed by put on a put on sort of a nice bit of ambient music on and lie on the shakti mat i don't know if it's done anything for my cycling because i don't do that much at the moment but uh yeah i, I think as, as as far as as far as meditation goes it helps with my focus. I yeah, I think just taking that time to, to switch off and do nothing for five minutes and, and put your phone to one side and just stop being on, you know? Um, just just stopping for five minutes uh, to do whatever it is, even if it's just sit in silence or to read a book or to do yoga or to meditate, whatever it is, just that period of stopping. When you do it, when you finally do it, you realise that usually you never stop. Usually you just go, you know, all day, every day you just go. And so when you stop, you think, wow, gosh, I really needed this in my life. But yeah, you heard it. You heard it here first. All the, all the pro teams will be on the Shakti mats before you know it. I'm not sponsored by them or anything, but I would, you know, I would love to, I would love to uh, you know, I'd love to hear you try it, see, see, how, see how you find it. And it's been one of those things, wouldn't it? If you tried it and then you won a race, suddenly everyone would be doing it, wouldn't they? That's, that's how it works in cycling. Um, listen, we're not going to talk about meditation throughout this podcast. This podcast is essentially um, the story of one brand. I've, I've just moved back to Nottingham. And if you look out my window, move a few houses out of the way under park, you would be able to see the site of the old uh, Rally factory. So, and it's also 20 years since Rally uh, 
left Nottingham, their final factory in Nottingham goes down. So that's what this episode is about. But before we get to that, Lizzie, there have been a lot of gates recently. There have been some gates. Let's go through the gates. Well, we've got a little bit of a new a news, a, a news roundup, which is, I feel it's a very fickle news roundup because we only do it when we feel like there's news that we think is newsworthy. So don't rely on us for your cycling news. Let me just say that. But Kitgate, it's been a bit of a thing over the last month or so. So, well, I'd say it probably started with uh, Ineos Grenadiers and and they had a different gate to uh, the women's side of the peloton. So Ineos Ineos Grenadiers have moved to Bioracer Kit this year, which is really exciting because... Um, following the Olympics, the the German national team, the uh, Dutch national team using BioRacer had these incredible skin suits at um, at the Olympics, and Ineos released their kit, and the images that they released all had very baggy sleeves. The fans, well, fans and uh, well, everybody in the cycling public really took to social media to <laughs> proclaim their disgust at how baggy the sleeves were, which I'd say is very surprising because Bioracer kit does look fantastic. So I wonder whether they just had a sort of fit kit that they were using, or perhaps it was a casual fit, um, casual fit jersey that they were wearing. But uh, they continued to post these photos of the riders in very baggy sleeved jerseys and the fans seemed to be irate about it and all seemed to suddenly be experts on sleeves. Well, two things. Guys, there's Photoshop, so there's no excuse. You can you can airbrush those those creases out. Secondly, do you not think it's maybe, you know, Dan Biggum's come into that team? He stumbled across something, apparently the baggy <laughs> sleeves make you faster. Is that what it could be? When Ghana when Ghana wins his first race, then the rest of the teams will be uh, displaying their baggy sleeves. Well, there's been a few other notable mentions. So we call that was that sleeve gate. That was sleeve gate. Sleeve gate. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a few other notable mentions in uh, kit design changes in the men's peloton. Cofidis, uh, who have finally updated their kit, they've moved away from red shorts, mm. um, and they've moved over to get kit provided by decathlon so it's decathlon's premier brand van that, that must save them a few pence <laughs> you get a and job lot for 30 quid <laughs> it's actually a very sharp design and it's the same design across their men's their new women's and their para squad which is really cool and it's just it's a really nice design actually um Team Bike Exchange Jayco. Well, here is a kit that divides opinion. They have moved across to Alley, and in typical Alley style, they have a very, very bold kit with uh, pinky purple echoes for the women and uh, a blue number for the men. And there was a lot of criticism at first to say, well, pink for the women, blue for the boys. But it's a little actually, bit like when you've had a kid that it's you know. It's well, the it's the blue it's the blue romper suit and the pink romper suit, you know. It it does look a bit like that, but actually when you dive into it more, it is the colours of the brand. So mm, yeah. Live Racing are the bike supplier for the women's side and Giants supply the bikes for the men's. And so despite the controversial first appearances, actually it just echoes the representation of, of the bike brands. Well, Canyon Tram knocked it out of the park once again. They, they always have- do. 
they always do. At the time of recording, it was yesterday that they released their new new kit. So the kit was designed by Alton Coyle, who was the first designer of the first was the sorry who was the designer of the first iteration of the Canyon Tram kit, which really made the headlines when it was released because it was really the only kit that wasn't just a, a block of sponsor names on a on a dull plane or terribly designed jersey. But that is not the only team making a splash on the women's side of things. Well, the second gate of the kit 2022 kit updates is, well, I'm going to call it Instagram gate. Another gate. So many gates. Well, there have been, I'd say, five teams whose kits look very similar uh, and based on the colours of the Instagram logo. So... I would say SD Works were the first to release their kit, but actually they weren't because Andy Schleck Cycles had a kit last year in 2021 that was exactly the same as their 2022 kit. They were then recently asked by the UCI to change their kit, despite the fact that it hasn't changed at all, and despite the fact that they were a smaller team and they had already manufactured their kit. So SD Works, Human Powered Health, formerly Rally, um, and Team UAE ADQ, formerly LABTC Libliana, have all gone for a sort of pinky, purpley, orangey, yellowy fade design. <laughs> That's a good way of describing it, that is, yeah. <laughs> After Andy Schleck were asked to change their kit, Team Live AWOL of the UK, uh, a, co- a continental squad this year, were also asked to change their kit, despite also having the same design in 2021. The final kit, the final team that was asked to change their kit was Bizkaya Durango, who, despite not clashing with SD Works, Human Powered Health and UAE ADQ, have an all pink number, or they had an all pink number. Now, the reason for this change is because it clashed with the UCI Women's World Tour Leaders jersey. And in the registration documents for the women's teams, it states that the jerseys cannot be one of a certain number of pantones that are the same or similar to the women's leaders jersey of the Women's World Tour or the Young Riders jersey. Lizzie, here's the thing. I I didn't. How did I not know that there was a Women's World Tour Leaders jersey in the peloton? The reason that you didn't know is because it was the same colour as SD Works and Live Racing and Canyon Tram last year. So this is where the problem lies. So a lot of teams have had to change their designs and obviously great minds think alike. Um, and they've all come out with the same design. So finally, notable absentees. Yes. Lit Extra, who also had a purple kit last year. EF Education, Easy Post and EF Education, Tibco SVB. Now, I'm happy to inform you that the latter of those two are currently shooting their kits in Girona as we speak. And I know now that the cycling media will be flocking to Girona to try and get a, uh, you know, an advance on these kits. Can't wait to see how baggy the sleeves are, Lizzie. Can't wait. (laughs) Well, I can assure you there are no baggy sleeves and I can assure you it looks absolutely phenomenal i haven't yet tom found a bucket hat but i will <laughs> endeavor to try to find is, one lizzie is your service course in girona then no our, our service course is up in belgium so to, to, I, I, here's a question i am actually a bit fascinated by service courses we hear a lot about them but i've never really sort of seen inside one if i was to go to your team's service course what would i see well our service course is still being built uh <laughs> 
No, no, it's interesting. I mean, there's a huge variation in what you might find in service courses. Actually, recently, Yumbo Visma released a video of a brand new, their brand new service course, which is over on their social media channels on their website. And um, it is phenomenal, the amount of money and effort and work that has gone into their service course. It is really it's something that you might expect to find in football, not in cycling. Because um, I'm and... imagining like, you know, sort of like a high end sort of show, a bit part Aladdin's Cave, part sort of high end showroom. Do you know what I mean? That's the sort of thing that I'm imagining. I mean, most service courses are are essentially a large garage, um, you know, places to store the bikes, places to um, store buses and vehicles and uh, somewhere where, of course, the mechanics can, can work on the bikes and you can store all the equipment and things. Um, but they do vary hugely, you know, alongside team budgets and, you know, the number of riders. Um, teams having a team and you know of course Yumbo Visma is not just the men's and women's team but also the uh, the, the skiing team so yeah. so yeah or oh, is look, it skiing team speed oh, skating look. sorry Correct speed, skating. speed skating speed skating <laughs> well the final part of the news roundup is uh, something that I actually spotted on Kickstarter and mm, it's a yeah. bit of an interesting one here it's called Saddle Spur and so it caught my eye because it's a design that I have never ever seen before and sometimes there are reasons why you've never seen something before because you've never <laughs> you've never thought well that is what I really need now I don't want to put you off because this might be exactly what you need and they say they're marketing it for triathletes and commuters but essentially it is a carbon lightweight saddle I think they quoted 256 grams um you described it Tom as yeah so I so I've seen the picture Lizzie but I, I haven't actually dug any deeper and worked out what it does to my eye it looks like a, a conventional saddle with a shoehorn attached to the back of it so presumably it's just for help putting your cleats on <laughs> Well, it it is, as you say, Tom, it looks like a saddle with a, a sort of, it's got a kind of, well, spur on the back of it. And it's almost like a saddle with a, a chair back. And the idea is that it enables you to push back against the back of the saddle um, in order to increase your power transfer. Now, as a road rider and somebody who rides in a aggressive position much of the time even when I'm training I have to say this is not something that I personally have ever needed I've almost needed the opposite to stop me sliding off the front of the saddle I think you're onto something here Lizzie this is the development and I think you should patent it right now <laughs> I think yeah and a telescopically extending saddle is perhaps um, what we need but anyway I thought it was interesting so um, go and give it a look and maybe it's just what you need yeah, I love I love Kickstarter for this sort of stuff. It's where you do tend to find the sort of weird and you know any crowdfunding site is where you t- tend to find the sort of weird and wacky stuff before it uh, breaks through. Um, well, actually, that saddle with a back sort of links us neatly onto what we're doing next because it's almost like the saddle on a rally chopper, and uh, we're going to explore all things rally. Once out of doors. They were more aware of the factory rumbling a hundred yards away over the high wall. Generators whined all night, and during the day, giant milling machines, working away on cranks and pedals in the turnery, gave to the terrace a sensation of living 
within breathing distance of some monstrous being that suffered from a disease of the stomach. 950 bloody five. Another few more and that's a lot for a Friday. 14 pounds, three and tuppence for a thousand of these a day. No wonder I've always got a bad back. What you heard there was James Walker, a digital storyteller whose previous work includes Dawn of the Unread, an online graphic novel series celebrating Nottingham's literary history. James was reading from Alan Sillitoe's Saturday Night Sunday Morning, and behind me now you can hear a clip from the 1960 film adaptation starring Albert Finney. You'll hear much more from James later as we discuss Sillitoe's work and his finest character creation, Arthur Seaton. My name is Tom Wally and I've just returned to Nottingham after the best part of 15 years living away from the city. I grew up here and I'm fiercely proud of where I come from. One source of pride was always Rally Bikes with their Heron logo and the words Nottingham England printed underneath. It's a sad coincidence that my return to the city comes on the 20th anniversary of Rally leaving Nottingham almost entirely. Factories closed but there is still a little hub out in Eastwood. Founded by Sir Frank Bowden in 1887, the brand was created after Bowden discovered cycling and its health benefits after a period of illness. By the 1920s, the company was producing over 100,000 bikes per year, with every part of them being built in Nottingham. Even during the war when the factory was producing items for the war effort, they were still knocking out more than 5,000 bikes per week. Hey, up here he is, look. Hello, Tom, you right? How you doing? Fine, thank you. How are you? How long has it been? Um, so maybe 10 or 15 years. 10, 15 years, isn't it? Yeah. Christ. Does it feel that long? No, it feels like yesterday. I feel familiar, like... Yeah. I feel like I've seen... The internet, I feel like I've seen you a lot. I've seen you as a JPEG. <laughs> I see you've brought a bike as well. I've brought a rally bike. Look at That's that. That's the voice of Chris Matthews, a local historian and an old friend of mine. Side note, Chris and I actually got paid to produce a podcast together back in the noughties, making us early pioneers of the medium. Chris took me on a walk of some of the former rally locations in Nottingham. If you come from the city, it's almost inevitable that someone from your family worked for rally at some point. I had a vague memory of one of my relatives working there, and so I called my mum to find out if I was remembering correctly. Hi, Tom. Hello, how's the COVID? Oh, I'm fine. Okay, good. Excellent. Yeah. Have you not I've got any You've had a bath, brilliant. I just got a headache. I felt a bit, I felt a bit snuffly for the last couple of days, and it, it came up as negative. Right. But it was positive this morning. But this, there's more about now. A lot of people I know that's got COVID. Yeah. That it's just like having the flu, you know, cold. And what I've done, I've got, I've got a little jug. I'm just keeping it. I thought I'm going to steam my face as well. Just so it just fits around my mouth and nose, and that felt lovely. Well, I'll notify the World Health Organization, shall I? Yeah. And they can well, well, I've been told to do that anyway oh, to I've clear been... my nose. Right, yeah, enough. because I've got guitar that bad to break it down. It breaks it down. So, following that important health update, I finally asked my mum if anyone in our family had indeed worked at Rally. Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob it did. Was a, yeah, it was a forker for forty years. <laughs> What's a, what does a forker do? You know the fork on your on your bike. He just made forks. I think he just fitted those. Did he? I'm not. And then I wish Ray was alive because he'd just talk about it for ages. He worked there as well, my old soldier friend. Did he? Uh, didn't did did Ken not work at Rally for a bit? No, Ken didn't work. No, at Rally. who did? Teresa did for a while. Dave Bagley did. Right. Oh, Dave Bagley did. What did he, he do? He, he got it to a halt because I think he was shop steward. 
tell so what so what else do you know about Bob working at Rally then? Did he ever talk about it or anything? Um not really. We used to laugh about him being a forker. <laughs> Chris, what I want to ask you is, um, has anyone in your family um, worked at Rally? Have you got a connection at all? Uh, yeah, I think I had a, a cousin, cousin Jonathan, uh, who's not, no longer with us, but he he, he worked at uh, Rally in the, in the 90s, just before it all it all closed. So he uh, used to employ thousands, so lots of people have family connections and that sort of thing. Um, and I think, I, I always think back to that 1990s period, the period where I grew up, at school and cousin Jonathan was working there and also where and how it ended at that time and it was actually quite sad um, there were a lot of other endings in the you know, coal industry or lace market and there was this feeling in Nottingham in the late 1990s of a loss of pride and rally was you know integral to that sense of identity because it'd been with the city for so long well I wanted to ask you about that actually because you know like I say it, I mean like I say a lot of my family well some of my family have worked here um, and, and family friends and that sort of stuff. And in those days, you know, going from the post-war onwards, most cities had a sort of an industry or something that was part of their identity. And you know, Nottingham had things like Boots yeah, and yeah, yeah. John Players making cigarettes. Oh, yeah, yeah. But Rally was a huge one, and you know, and it was known around the world. It's a source of pride for Nottingham, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was one of the biggest employers in the city. Manufactured, I think, at its height, around you know, two million bicycles a year and exported them all over the world, Australia, America, Europe, uh, wherever. And I I remember as a kid, you know, know, not very conscious of much apart from telly and things like that, but I do remember um, seeing, you know, rally bicycle adverts on television, seeing rally lorries, the blue lorries at Crown Island and down the motorway and going up and down the country, you know, on holiday and things like that, and you'd see a rally bicycle and it would say on it, made in... Nottingham, England. So, and it was always a part. You know, this is this is where I'm from, and this is the kind of thing that you know my family and my neighbours have have d- doing have done. <laughs> you know, and um, yeah, but um, that you know, Arthur Seaton world of the 1950s, that confidence was really being questioned. They bested me right enough. Still, I had my better fun. It ain't the first time I've been in a losing fight. Won't be the last time that I don't suppose. There's Arthur Seaton again. For those that don't know, he was the protagonist in Alan Sillito's Saturday Night, Sunday Morning. And he was played by Albert Finney in the 1960 film adaptation, one of the most celebrated examples of the kitchen sink drama, the social realist British cultural movement that spanned film, television, literature and theatre through the late 50s and early 60s. The character of Arthur Seaton worked right here in the rally factory where Chris and I are standing. Well, I mean, we should talk about where we're stood right at the moment because there is actually, you know, a, um, a remnant of rally. I can see a rally. Yeah. Uh, I can see the rally badge on a on a plaque on the wall there. Where are we, Chris? So we're on, we're on Triumph Road, um, and it's got a little kink in it, and um, it's got there's a, a building with a bridge. Like a, a grey bridge. Looks a bit like something out of Blade Runner, doesn't it? It's it, a very it, futuristic it, it looking does, curved building. Yeah, it was designed by Make Architects, and you've got, they, they did the, the sculpture and the other red buildings nearby. And this, this grey one, the idea behind it is that it looks like a, a derailleur gear if you're on Google Maps. Check it out, it really does. If you didn't know Nottingham, you moved here and you're sort of walking around, you wouldn't know there was a, a factory. 
unless you're, you're really sort of nosy and you notice this freeze. As much as I'd endeavour to tell you what a rear derailleur was if I was on an arts podcast, I think I should explain here that a frieze is a broad horizontal band of sculpted or painted decoration. It's uh, got three cycle wheels on one side, three on another, and it's got Sir Walter Raleigh. Is it? Is Raleigh named after Sir Walter Raleigh? Uh, yes, in, by, by by some you know kind of detour. Right. It's it, it begun. In uh, Raleigh bicycles begun manufacturing in a lace factory in New Radford, just off Canning Circus. That's where it all begins. Um, and they started on a street called Raleigh Street. So that's, that's where the name, name comes from. Um, and it's quite interesting if you go to that, that Raleigh Street area, you've still got one or two lace factories. You haven't got the original lace factory where it started, but um, lace... Uh, workers, those who built the lace uh, machines, had to be highly skilled. They were skilled mechanics. And sometimes the lace industry is fashion fickle. And you have a downturn in trade, and they turn themselves to uh, new skills. So they think, all oh, right, okay, there's a, um, a boom in people wanting bicycles in the 1880s, 1890s. Uh, and so they, three lace mechanics start making bicycles. And that's how it how it begins. Following our roam around what remains of the original rally site in Nottingham, Chris took me about a quarter of a mile down the road to another very significant location. Um, well, we're right, right outside the the White Horse Pub, uh, which featured in the film Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. Um, and if we're, we're looking at it, it looks like, um, I would say, an 1890s, perhaps uh, Edwardian-type building. And it's got these smooth, you know, ceramic bricks on the side of the building, which were very common. Bright green. Bright green. Um, and they're a smooth surface. And they were made at this time in cities like Nottingham and Sheffield because when you have a, a dirty, smoky city... Uh, with soot and grime, you could wipe them off and you can clean it. So that was a way of keeping the city clean and making buildings look nice. The pub itself, for me, is the most iconic thing in Nottingham. You know, people talk about Market Square and the Council House and the Castle. No, it's the White Horse Pub. Here's Silito expert and digital storyteller James Walker again. I mean, those beautiful green tiles. Every time I go by that on the 28 bus, I get a shiver down my spine, you know. Um, let me just read from the opening page of Saturday night and Sunday morning. For it was Saturday night, the best and bingiest glad time of the week, one of the 52 holidays and the slow-turning big wheel of the year, a violent preamble to a prostrate Sabbath. Piled-up passions were exploded on Saturday night, and the effect of a week's monotonous graft in the factory was swirled out of your system in a burst of goodwill. You followed the motto of be drunk and be happy, kept your crafty arms around female waists and felt the beer going beneficially down into the elastic capacity of your guts. The White Horse pub is where everyone from Raleigh went after work and drank together. The, the, the legacy of Raleigh is obvious here. You know, if we look across the road, back towards Triumph Road, there's a student accommodation, 
with Rally Park written in big letters, and uh, Silito Court is the name of the uh, of the building. Silito, uh, uh, Chris, a big part of of Nottingham's identity, isn't it? Yeah, and um, Silito, he grew up in um, a council house in Lenton Abbey Estate, which is I don't know about half a mile uh, on that in that direction. And he was a very successful writer, and I think um, it could be put in the category of the angry young men writers, or generally writers with a sort of working class or ordinary experience um, that were quite shocking for you know the, the British establishment or whatever at that time, and I gave I guess gave people a, a fresh view um, during that that post-war period. So we've heard from James Walker a couple of times already. I spoke with him at length about Alan Silito, Arthur Seaton and Raleigh. He told me how he was introduced to Silito. Well, I guess I grew up in a mining village um, just outside Nottingham called Cockgrave. And uh, it was a pretty rough time in the 80s, if I'm perfectly honest. It was um, full of Geordies and Mackens who'd come down there to work. And I was an outsider. I was born in Reading. I moved up to Nottingham when I was three or four, so I still had a very slight southern twang to my voice. My parents weren't miners, so I just had the shit kicked out of me regularly and learned to deal with it. And reading was an absolute escape for me. And obviously the 80s were a time when, you know, the Thatcherism and all the things that were happening, it felt quite militant in lots of respects. And I came across Saturday Night and Sunday Morning actually via the Smiths. So there was a lyric in in, in one of the songs. And uh, being quite into my music, I wanted to know more about the context. Uh, so, so I picked up Saturday Night and Sunday Morning and it just absolutely blew me away because Arthur Seaton was somebody who was so sure of who he was and refused to bow to any kind of authority. That absolute defiant individualism was exactly what a young 16-year-old kid needed to read about. It's like, wow, th- this is this is what you need to do to survive. And I just, I love the book. I think I've reread it, it must be 10 times, you know, and I've used it in so many different capacities through writing projects and that. It's just a wonderful experience. But I should just make a very, very important point here. I love reading about people like Arthur Seaton. I do not want him as a friend. He's an utter bastard. You know, which is why I like reading about him. So let's not over-romanticise that I'd like to go out with him and have a pint because it'd be getting off with my missus, it'd cause trouble, it'd just be a horrible evening. Mum called me Barmy when I told her I fell off a gasometer for a bet. But I'm not Barmy. I'm a fighting pit prop that wants a pint of beer, that's me. But if an annoying bastard says that's me, I'll tell him I'm a dynamite dealer waiting to blow the factory to kingdom come. I'm me and nobody else. Whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not. Because they don't know a bloody thing about me. God knows what I am. People love Arthur Seaton because he is a defiant individualist. He's charismatic. He does everything the way that he wants to do it. And I think those kind of characters always appeal to people you know we secretly all want to be a kind of Arthur Seaton but um, we're not (laughs) 
you know. Uh, Arthur Seaton works hard and plays hard. You know, he won't let anyone get anything over on him. So I, I think in that sense, there are lots of fit, figures we could trace historically and literally that that, that really appeals to us. You know, from your Marlon Brando in The Wild One to your Jimmy Dean to, I, I mean, even today, really, um, when I reimagined Arthur Seaton being alive again today, how would he interpret Nottingham? I asked um, Jason Williamson of the Sleaford Mods to do the voiceover because Jason has got what I call a Nottingham face. It's a night when they come, when I'm alone and not with anyone. Through the shouts and music, at the crowd down the road boozing. Near the free car park, the bins and the alleyway, at the Chinese restaurant. I remember getting an email in the early noughties from Jason telling me that I was an entitled C-word or something to that effect. It was probably entirely accurate at the time. It was also a very Arthur Seaton-esque move. We should probably talk here about the ways in which Silito, Arthur Seaton and through them, Rally have slipped into popular culture. James mentioned how the Smiths referenced Silito, and you just heard Arthur Seaton's famous quote, which was used as the title for Arctic Monkeys' debut album. References also crop up in work by The Stranglers, and Jake Bugg's latest album was called Saturday Night, Sunday Morning. Right now, I should probably let James explain what he means by a Nottingham face. It's the eyebrows, it's the look of, who are you? You, you, you know what I mean? That, that's a very Nottingham kind of characteristic. I mean, I remember when Nottingham became a UNESCO city of literature. I told one of my mates, and I was so proud, and he just said, turned to me and just said, so what? <laughs> just that utter dismissal. And for me, these are Seaton-esque moments. You know, it's like, look, I'm going to live my life how I want to live it, and I'm going to do what I want to do. And, you know, if we think in the current climate with COVID, with restrictions with the duplicity of government compared with what we're expected to do you know I think people like Seaton even more are aspirational characters in the sense of trust your own convic- convictions being be responsible with your own destiny you, you know don't listen to those bastards because they grind you down you, you know they're not to be trusted and I'm not <laughs> I'm not going on an anti-vax run here let's point that out okay <laughs> I'm making the point that you've got to kind of, you can only look out for yourself in life. That That's what Seaton's taught us, and that is a message that's endless. Back when he was closer to Arthur Seaton's age, James actually worked in The Crown, a pub opposite the Rally Factory. I, I remember um, working, and all of a sudden, all of these guys coming in the pub. I was 18, so I didn't really know too much what was going on with the culture and the history, you know, it's it's very interesting how important rallies come to me, you know, in, in later years through Eden Silito. But yeah, you get all of these group of dirty, greasy men coming, necking three pints in, I don't know, about 45 minutes. Then they'd disappear. Then at about, I don't know, five o'clock, you'd get the same group of men come in, looking more tired, but a little bit happier. And they'd have a couple of pints and they'd disappear. And then they'd return again at seven o'clock. But the difference now is they'd have a clean shirt on and the hair would be greased back. And it was only years later that I realised, you know, these were Arthur Seaton's. 
These were men who had worked their graphs off in a noisy environment, you know, really slugging and non-stop graft. And they needed that release. They needed the pints. But I don't think you would see that often nowadays. People needing to go to the pub three times in one day. I mean, it's a, it's a time gone. I mean, one interesting story um, of, a, of an ex-rally worker was uh, I knew a woman called Anne Hodgkinson, who unfortunately passed away last year. And she worked at Rally in the 70s and 80s. And she was kind of like a female Arthur Seaton in the sense that, you know, she, she was a lesbian. So she encountered lots of kind of, well, you can imagine, encountered lots of different attitudes towards her life. But she worked her way up at Rally. Um, but the problem was she was illiterate. And she wanted to do this manager's job, but she couldn't do the reports. So she would come home and her wife would, she'd talk to her wife and her wife would type it out for her, write it out for her. And then she'd take it back to work. That for me is Seaton-esque again. It's survival. You know, it, it's not being ground down. And she told me this really interesting story that because she'd worked in the factory and she knew how hard it was, when it came to dishing out overtime, no one could pull one over on her. And she said, what I used to do is, I used to have to empty the big um, buckets of the swath or, or all of the, the filings that they'd, they'd come off the drills and everything. And she said, I knew how hard they'd been working by how heavy that was. And she said, of course, when it came to a Friday, these, these big um, things she was carrying around suddenly got heavier. But she would work it out for herself, the average over the week. Now, on Saturday night and Sunday morning, you've got the same thing with Robbo the foreman who's always breathing over Arthur Seaton's neck. And he doesn't like it that Seaton works so hard because he knows how much money he's going to be earning. And he's worried that that's going to piss off the other people. But, you know, so Seaton has to play this kind of cat and mouse game with him where he earns just enough that he doesn't get into trouble, but it's enough that he's above everyone else. So that kind of factory life is just incredible. All of those stories, you know, that kind of guttural knowledge of work and people and, and the weight of work as well. Chris, I can see uh, a beautiful neoclassical sort of civic style building in front of me. And uh, all across the facade are these panels depicting cherubs building bikes. That's how it happened, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Um, this is a, a classical building uh, designed by T.C. Howitt, who did the Nottingham Council House. So Nottingham's biggest architect at that time, designing... Uh, what time was what time was that? 30s, this is. Um, this, I think it's one of the first buildings that Howitt did when he went into private practice. So before he was working for the council, and he was doing the council house, and he, he did about 7,000 council houses right. as well. So it had a huge impact on the city, and he's becoming very successful, very notable, and he ends up doing um, this this office and showroom building for the rally cycle building. So when you you when you went, would have gone in, you would have found not only would you've had the offices for for management and so on, but you would have had a very very still there actually a welcoming entrance um, with a sort of nice atrium, your classical columns when you go inside, and also a ballroom upstairs as well. So it was um, you know a social centre of. Of sort. And that's of the time, isn't it? The, the ballroom in the, in the office. I mean, Boots had a ballroom, didn't it? All these places yeah, had their own yeah. sort of in-house ballrooms. So your, your social life, when you worked at a big factory like Boots or, or Rally or Players, would have been 
intrinsically connected to the the, 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 the factory you work for, your holidays as well. You would have had a works holiday and so on. Um, it was all connected. You know, it's quite, kind of strange for our generation because I remember you know, v- you know, various jobs I've had and sometimes they're, they're going, oh, Chris, do you want to go on a, a works? I go, no. <laughs> I, do, I do not want to go and have a drink or Christmas lunch, Christmas no. meal. You know, it's like, that's my nightmare, that is. But back then, that was a part of it. And social life and human connections were very, a little bit different, I think, as well. And this building still survives then. I mean, if you, if you look over, we're looking over the fence towards it, where the, these big giant columns are at the front, where the front entrance would have been. And the, the rally... The Rally R still survives on the facade of the building above the door. This building then, is this listed? It, it got listed just a, just a few years ago, which was um, a, a nice surprise. And I think it got listed for two reasons. One, because um, it was the headquarters of the, the biggest cycle manufacturer in the world at one point, And the, this building still survives, so it makes sense that this should um, you know, be listed to remember our history and also can be, can be reused for good purposes but also it has a, uh, a, a very interesting story which I didn't know about um, and I think it, it was funny because this listing happened during the Windrush scandal yeah. um, and one of the reasons why it was listed is because of the associations with um, Nottingham's black sort of civil rights movement in the post-war period so a lot of black fit um, people who wanted to work here felt discriminated against and succeeded in getting, uh, I think it was um, one of the Afro-Caribbean countries, might have been Jamaica, to um, stop importing rally bicycles. Right. Um, and so rally went, oh right, well, sorry about that, and changed their employment policy. Um, and so it was a huge moment of sort of progress for black employees in, in Nottingham and, and also uh, in, in Britain in general, I guess. So th- there was that history as well. Then, of course, later on, um, the ballroom became the Marcus Garvey Centre, named after a, uh, a a black independence campaigner for Jamaica um, and you know a, a part of Nottingham's black cultural cultural history as well. A venue for you know, music and. That, that if you were into drum and bass in the 90s, you'd have definitely been to uh, yeah, the yeah, Marcus yeah. Garvey Centre overnight. Not what T.C. Howitt imagined. I've talked a little already about musicians that have referenced Alan Silito, but I also wanted to flag up some more instances of rally cropping up in popular culture. We're underway, the hell of the West, stage number one. In the classic cycling movie American Flyers from 85, David Sommers rides a rally bike through St. Louis. And there are a bunch of rallies featured in 1986's bike messenger classic Quicksilver, starring Kevin Bacon. Hey, hey, see that guy up there? Here's $50 if you can beat him past the station. Oh, and Wikipedia tells me that rally e-bikes were featured in an episode of The Apprentice. Rally didn't just make bikes for you and me, they made top-end road racing bikes too. Bikes which were ridden to victory in some of cycling's biggest races. 
The TI rally team began in 1974. By 1975, they had world champion Henny Kuiper on the team and riding their bikes. Henny Kuiper, world champion, the sprint for the second place in the from here, the team started to become one of the most successful of the era. In 76, the team won three stages at the Tour de France and five at the Vuelta. In 77, the team won seven stages at the Tour de France, with Henny Kuiper finishing second overall. Then in 78, they won eight stages at the Tour, and Gary Kinetinen won the World Championships. In 79, they had another world champion on their books as Jan Ras took the rainbow jersey. Then, in 1980, the team took 11 stages at the Tour de France, with Joop Zotemelk taking the overall. By 1983, the team had fallen apart due to tensions between Jan Ras and team leader Peter Post. But that wasn't the end for rally at the top table of the sport. At the 1984 Olympics in LA, Team USA rode the bikes to victory in the men's and women's road races. Nelson Vales was also riding one when he became the first black cyclist to win an Olympic medal as he took silver behind teammate Mark Gorski in the individual sprint. All right, the bell lapped and this is where it will happen. Now you can see Nelson starting to wind it up. Make sure Rally then went on to supply bikes for the System U team and came on board as a title sponsor when the team became Super U Rally Fiat. As part of that setup, Rally bikes were ridden to victories in the Giro, in Lombardia and Milan San Remo. Which makes it all the more sad that the Heron logo with Nottingham, England written beneath it is completely absent from professional racing these days. I want now to talk about some of the classic rally models from over the years and some of the not-so-classic models that I myself owned. But first, I asked Lionel Burney to tell me about his classic rally that he lovingly restored and it harks back to those glory days of rallies being ridden by the biggest names in the sport. Tom has asked me to talk a little bit about my rally bike, which I built up over the winter of 1989-90 when I was 14 years old. In fact, the project went deeper into the spring and early summer because it took quite a long time for my dad and I to build this bike up from scratch. And, well, it came at a time when I was after a proper lightweight racing bicycle. My previous bikes had been a Rally Striker and then a Rally Pacer, which was the first bike I owned with drop handlebars. And then I had an MBK bike, which looked a bit like the one that Stephen Roach raced on, but it was pretty heavy, pretty clunky. And so I wanted a proper lightweight machine. And if you remember the summer of 1989, you'll know that Laurent Fignon was riding for Super U and that he won the Giro d'Italia and he came agonizingly close to winning the Tour de France, losing out in the final time trial with just eight seconds to Greg LeMond. Uh, but the thing about Fignon was that he was riding a rally bike and it was a really elegant looking thing. It was a predominantly white frame with patches of red, yellow and blue on the three tubes that make up the main triangle. And so a little bit later that summer when I saw an advert in Cycling Weekly for Jeffrey Butler Cycles with a very similar looking rally frame, it really yelled out to me and I knew that that was the one that I had to have. 
It was made from Reynolds 531 tubing, which was not as lightweight or as prestigious as the 653 or 753 frame sets, um, but it was within my budget. I suppose keen club riders and racing cyclists would have considered 531 frames a sort of training frame, but that didn't matter to me because it looked like the bike that Laurent Fignon rode. And so one Saturday afternoon, my dad drove me round the M25 to Croydon, to Geoffrey Butler Cycles, where we bought the frame and we brought it home. And for a number of weeks, months probably, it just leant up against the wall in my bedroom while I saved the money from my pocket money and Christmas money and wherever else I could to buy the components to go on the bike. Now, I had a very specific idea of what I wanted to go on this frame and I kept a notebook with all of my top choices for group set. I knew that I wanted the Mavic MA40 black anodized rims. I knew that I wanted the Chinelli handlebars and stem. I knew that I wanted the turbo saddle with its elegant rainbow bands logo on the side. And I knew that I wanted Campagnolo components. But I also knew that my budget would only stretch to the cheaper group set, the Athena group set. And so I scoured the adverts in Cycling Weekly to find the best prices and I drew up a strategy to order things in a particular order to make the um, postage prices as cheap as I possibly could and gradually the bike began to take shape and my dad and I put it together as the components arrived in the post. And the finishing touch was the handlebar tape. Now, Laurent Fignon, during the 89 Tour, I think on Bastille Day, the French national holiday, unveiled some really snazzy tricolore red, white and blue tape. Uh, but I couldn't find anything like that. So the next best thing was to do one half in red and one half of the handlebars in blue. And the bike stayed like that for many years. And I loved riding it. I rode it until I outgrew it. And then we put it in the loft at my parents' house. And there it stayed until around about 10 years ago when I dug it down for nostalgia's sake and decided to restore it to its former glory. It, it had, the shine had gone off some of the components a bit. It needed a proper strip down and polish. Some of the bits needed replacing. And so I asked my friend Andrew Brown, who runs a bike shop very close to me, if for the price of a few curries and a few beers, he would help me restore the bike. And he did an absolutely wonderful job. And I was very happy. But there was one key difference with the restoration project. And that was that I replaced the brakes on the bike because back when I was a teenager, I really sought after the Campagnolo record Delta brakes. And if you haven't seen these brakes, you've got to Google them and have a look because they are unlike anything else. They were a tall, elegant, triangular design and they just looked the absolute bee's knees and all of the best riders had them and they made the bikes look fantastic and i really really wanted some but they were way way out of my price range 200 pounds on their own back in the day and so i uh, had to have the campagnolo athena brakes which were just a standard caliper set but when i was doing the restoration i searched ebay and i found a pair in mint condition they were down in South Wales and I drove all the way down there and collected them and we put them on the bike and the bike was finished exactly as 14 year old me would have dreamed. And once or twice a summer, I take the bike out and I go on an hour or so's loop, stop at a pub, I lean the bike against the wall at the right angle so that the sun will glint off the shiny components and the frame. And I just bathe in some pleasant nostalgia remembering the joy of a bike building project that took months 
and had a lot of thought and care go into it. And I suppose every time I see a rally of any kind, I think of that bike and uh, yeah, it transports me back to my childhood when owning a rally with the Heron badge on the head tube uh, really meant something quite special. My experience of owning a rally is quite different to Lionel Burney's. My first bike was a Rally BMX 16, a sort of smaller and cheaper version of the Rally Burner. It was blue with yellow pads and mag wheels. I upgraded that to a Rally Extreme at a point when manufacturers thought front and rear disc wheels were a good idea. They definitely weren't. That bike was stolen when my mum left the garage unlocked overnight. My final rally was an Amazon, part of their early 90s range of mountain bikes. I wanted the Apex with the suspension in the stem, but as always with bikes, the one I wanted was too expensive. The coolest rally I ever saw was a Rally Grifter owned by my friend Chris in the late 90s. There was nothing special about it, but Chris had tied a Jarvis Cocker balloon to the handlebars, and combined with his vintage velvet jacket, it was something to behold. On the subject of grifters, here's Richard Moore. Hello, it's Richard Moore here remembering my first rally, which I got for my birthday when I was turning eight or nine. I actually felt terrible because I found the bike, a gleaming red grifter, hidden in the cupboard that went up to our attic. And then I had to act surprised when I was given it a few days later by my parents. The first thing my dad realised after I'd unwrapped it was that it had two left pedals. Having rectified the pedal situation, within days the red paint started to flake off. It was clearly faulty, so my parents had to return the bike, and its replacement was silver. But it was muted, more grey than silver, not quite as eye-catching as the vibrant red. If it sounds like my childhood was just one disappointment after another, I'm joking. That's not strictly true, because I grew to love my grifter, especially when I discovered that if you tucked the front mud flap under the wheel, it made a noise like a motorbike. Well, until I wore a hole in the mud flap, and that was the end of that. What was the grifter? It wasn't a BMX and it wasn't a mountain bike. It predated mountain bikes by a few years. It was a kind of a hybrid. It had chunky all-terrain tyres, but it was seriously heavy, like a tank. And it was great fun. With friends, I spent long evenings on a BMX dirt track round the back of a local supermarket. The grifter was a bit too heavy for this, really. I couldn't get much air on the jumps, but it was exhilarating. And once moving, it was very difficult to stop me. Yes, just like a buffalo. I also began to ride a lot with my dad, and one day riding to my grandparents, my foot slipped off the pedal when I got out the saddle. I fell against my dad and onto the road, smashing my nose and knocking out my front tooth. Hours later, my grandfather was sent to retrieve the tooth on the advice of my dentist from the road, and my dentist put it back in, but it was too late. The tooth did not last. It wasn't nearly as robust as the grifter. Tomorrow, in fact, I'm having a new bridge fitted by my dentist here, a legacy of that crash almost 40 years ago. So perhaps I shouldn't have such fond memories of my silver rally grifter with the hole in the mud flap, but I really do. It was my first proper bike, and it was on the grifter that I learned to love cycling. Another rally classic was the Burner, Rally's entry into the BMX market, and the bike that was ridden by Rally's BMX pros like Andy Ruffle. Okay, you've persuaded me. All right then, thank you very much indeed. 
Here's Rally Burner Collector, Julian Hopkins. Right, well, I've got my first burner uh, for Christmas, December 1982. And uh, the reason why I only got that bike actually by accident. Uh, I actually had a rally grifter for my birthday in May of 1982. And around about the end of September, early October, it got stolen. So anyway, we did find the bike um, a few weeks later, but it had been stripped. It was basically just a frame of forks left. So uh, we got the police and everything. Luckily, the bike was insured. And uh, anyway, on Christmas Eve, uh, the insurance check came through and Halfords was open till 12 o'clock. And uh, my dad took me down to Halfords and the only burner they had left, I wanted the blue one, but I wanted the blue one with the, with the yellow Skyway Tufts, but the only burner they had left was the, the blue one without the Skyway Tufts. So that was my first bike in 1982. And then in 1985, I got a Andy Ruffle Team Special. And uh, at the time we couldn't afford to have an Aero Pro. So that was the bike I got because I just loved the team colors. It's rad, this. A number one on a qual doing a kamikaze. Andy ain't no klutz. He can trash can the squids. And this 18-year-old lorry driver's son from Walthamstow can relax with his powder puff at night with the knowledge that he's on his way to becoming a millionaire. When it comes to berm warfare, Andy Ruffle is a number one. Now the Andy Ruffle team special, it was blue at the front, it was white at the back, and then there was a red and a yellow stripe. Now they made a racing bike in the same colours, uh, a road bike. And the first time I ever saw the Aero Pro, which is the top of the range Mark II Rally Burner, in those team colours, I thought, oh my God, I was just in love with it. The burner, though, obviously, so that's your first burner. What I mean, so, so, uh, some of some of my, so I got in touch with a few of my BMX friends, say, do, do you want to talk to me for this? And a few of them are a bit sniffy about the burner, yeah. And yeah. you know about that, but what is it about the burner that you particularly love? First of all, I think the reason why a lot of people are sniffy about the burners is because basically they weren't very well made bikes in terms of the geometry of the frames. They weren't really made for racing or freestyle, especially the Mark I uh, version bikes, because they were very small. So obviously for, for an older rider, they, they just didn't have the, the length on the frame and they used to have very small handlebars on them as well. So they weren't really ideal for kids like sort of over 11 or 12. They, they, they were too small. And because of the weight of the bikes, they, they were very sort of frowned upon. However, the beauty of the burners is that they were affordable to most most parents and a lot of parents couldn't afford to buy their kids higher-end bikes so um, I think that's why the, the burners were for me they were my favorite BMX back in the day because they were all the bikes most of my friends had burners now if we could produce a BMX track that would be a miracle sorry only one a day union rules 
Now, come on, Judy, do your stuff. You really had to be a kid in the 80s to appreciate how big the BMX phenomenon was. BMXers were absolutely everywhere, and movie makers were cashing in on the craze with films like Rad and BMX Bandits, featuring a very young Nicole Kidman. And of course, there was Steven Spielberg's E.T., which gave us the impression that BMXers could do pretty much anything. They could even fly. When I got my first BMX, I was living in Wales at the time, and I used to. There used to be this place um, just on the. It's a place called Bather, and down the bottom of, of the Bather um, estate, there was this massive, like, big trench. We used to call it the black hole, and it was just like a massive bowl. That's how I can describe it. It was all it was old uh, coal dust, and it, it must have been dug out at some point, and it just left the hole in the ground. And you could guarantee every day there'd be at least 20 kids, no matter what the weather was, freezing cold, summer, there'd always be at least 20 kids down there on their bikes. So I used to live down there virtually every night after school, I'd be down there, summer holidays, spend all my time. We moved away from there and we ended up living in Northampton. And when we moved there, they had a BMX track. I lived in a place called Rectory Farm and they had a BMX track there. And then I would just live over the BMX track. It was just, I, everywhere I went, I went on my bike. There was, there was a big gang of us, um, who, who used to ride out on these bikes and uh, it was just it was just part of my growing up well fast forward to the present day then um the burner is still very much part of your life um how how much how much a part of your life is the burner at the moment um well i've been collect i started collecting in 2003 what happened was i saw my old bike on ebay and i had a bid on it and it was up in Stoke-on-Trent. It was a hell of a way from where I live. So I, I went to pick it up. It took me about three and a half hours to get there. And when I got it, I was really disappointed because it, it, it looked in really, really good condition on the pictures. And when I got it, it, it was a bit of a wreck. So I decided to uh, restore it and uh, I did it all up. And I thought, I'm going to get another one and do it. And then it just got a little bit addictive. And then I, I got another one, another one. Then I had 20, then I had 30, then I had 40. And then I did actually start selling up in 2011 and I regretted it, but I've now replaced all those bikes and I, I must be up to about 70 bikes now, I think. In your collection then, is, is there one that's an absolute, um, absolute favourite, an absolute standout? It's the, it's the um, Rally Team Aero Pro. Um, it's the bike I always wanted. When it, was, it was my favourite BMX from the 80s. Like I said, I had the Andy Ruffer team special, which wasn't as good as that one. Um, and if I had to sell all my collection, I would always keep that bike. I would never, ever sell it. I've also got a um, uh, slightly used uh, Rally uh, Tough Burner Mark 1, which is a blue frame bike with yellow Skyway wheels. It's, it's one of, in my opinion, this probably is the most iconic Rally Burner in terms of what you remember from your, your sort of BMX childhood days. That bike, everybody knows that bike. And uh, I managed to get one off a guy um, down in Kent, and this is going back years ago, and I paid quite a lot of money for it at the time. And uh, I needed, when I started selling some access, I, about four people nearly bought that bike, and it, but it never actually happened. And I'm so glad I kept it, because if I had to keep 
another bike, it would definitely be that one because it's, it's like brand new. It, it's, it was actually owned by a little girl and she never used it. And they put it up in the, in the uh, loft. It, they took the wheels off and put it up in the loft. And this guy who knew the family, uh, Fraser, he got it off them somehow. And then he never actually built it up. He left the wheels off. And when I bought it off, they still, they still hadn't put the wheels back on it. So I put the wheels back on it, built it back up. And it's like brand new. And that is such a hard bike to find in that condition, you know, like barely used. Thanks to Julian Hopkins, who is also a collector of Hitachi boomboxes, BMXs and boomboxes. Rad. The Rally Burner is undoubtedly a classic, but it's not the classic when it comes to rally. That honour has to go to a bike, started life in the 60s, and makes about as much sense now as it did then. The Chopper. Hello. Hello, Ken. How are you doing? Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I've just been uh, undecorating the house. This is Ken Price, an avid collector of choppers with one of the biggest collections out there. It's a pure hobby. I'm not a bicycle shopper or anything, but uh, I've got so many friends in the chopper world that uh, people come around to me, uh, this bit don't work, and then I look at the bike and say, well, look, that bit's wrong and that bit don't. I said, leave it with me for a few days, you know. Um, but I mean, they're so well built that most of the time it's just a matter of cleaning and adjusting. You know, the the quality of the steel work and everything was just marvellous, which is why they were probably so expensive. <laughs> well, well, tell me, you, you mentioned Chopper World. Uh, tell me about Chopper World. How big is Chopper World? Is it is it a massive community? Is it, are there collectors like you all around the place, all over the world? Um, yeah, um, I mean, there is the old question: how many are left? Who knows? Um, I would get, I mean, certainly I would say there's a minimum of probably 35,000 left. And that's just the ones I know about. So what is a rally chopper worth these days? Well, if you had one that had been frozen in ice along with the woolly mammoth, never been used, kept in the dry, looks like... The day it came out the factory, never been used in the original box, it's hard to say. Possibly 10,000, possibly more. If you pulled a rusty Mark 1 out of the back of a garage that had been standing there 35 years, all covered in rust, all gone to bits, you could still get up to maybe six or seven hundred pounds for it. Well, actually, we should, we should hear about your, um, your collection. Tell me what, what's in your collection at the moment. <laughs> Right, let's think. Well, first of all, I've got a, uh, a 1969 uh, cable through, which is basically the first batch. Next one, I've got... Now, this causes arguments, because although the dating of it is late 69, I've got a lady frame chopper, which was known as the Girly. I've got a, a 1972 Ultraviolet Mark II, that's all an original paint. That's 50 years old this year. Then I've got a, oh, let's see, a January 1973 red. I don't mean to interrupt, but just rest assured, Ken has a lot of choppers. But what is it that he loves about them? I'll tell you what I find with it, is if you look at one today, and, and you see it, it just looks so modern, even now. Um, I was um, cycling up uh, uh, up a bit of a hill to someone's house uh, a couple of years ago, and there were two kids about 11 or 12, and they were out kicking a ball on the street. And they just stopped when I came along, and the ball went rolling off down the hill. And as I went by, they said, wow, 
that's one cool bike, mister. Now, that's what, two years ago? So the appeal to the age group that they were designed for, which is, I would imagine, sort of 12 to 16, because in, in them days, 16-year-olds hadn't grown up so much, shall we say, before they all wanted derailers and big levers and then discovered girls or something. Um, but it, it shows that the the, the um, appeal to that age group is still there. Which then raises the question, 52, 53 years ago, what kind of an impression did they make then? What what Rally did was, start, I think they just sort of threw the rule book out the window and started afresh. And they did. I mean, the arrow wedge frame was a completely new idea rather than the, you know, the double triangle diamond frame that every bike had up till then. And, the, and these things started appearing. Well, of course, the problem with it was was the cost because most people couldn't afford them or couldn't have one. So it was the rich kids got them. Well, of course, that then makes everyone else want one, doesn't it? <laughs> and want to have a ride on it and want to have a go. And, of course, the parents poo-pooed them, not necessarily because there was anything wrong with them, but the fact they couldn't afford them. Oh, no, you don't want that. It's a load of rubbish. It's not any good for riding. It's not a proper bike. Can't do a paper round on it. So back now to 2022, and it's now 20 years since the last rally factory in Nottingham shut down, the final 280 jobs going with it, and it ended 114 years of bicycle production in the city. It was the end of an era and a sad day for a brand that had once employed 8,000 people just up the road from where I am talking to you now. Speaking to the BBC at the time, local MP Graham Allen said, I go all around the world, I talk to people, and once you've got over Robin Hood, the thing they know about Nottingham is the rally cycle. It was the thing that was really a badge of pride for the whole of Nottingham. At least we still have Robin Hood. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Yes, thanks as ever to Science in Sport for their continued support of all the work we do here at the Cycling Podcast. They also support me in my personal life. When I'm on the turbo, I'm always using Science in Sport gels. And I've got two young kids, so every now and again when I'm up in the middle of the night and I'm feeling a bit low, I have reached for a gel or a bar. So they support childcare as well. Science in Sport is fantastic. If you need any Science in Sport goodies, and of course you do, then you can get 25% off your next order. Just go to scienceinsport.com and enter the offer code SISCP25. That's SISCP25. Lizzie, have you ever owned, uh, I mean, you're, well, you're not, I'm going to say you're from Sheffield, but that's not where you're actually from. That's where you're based these days. But um, have you ever owned a rally? Well, you know, it's really fascinating listening to, to your piece, Tom, because for me, as somebody so new to cycling, the rally brand didn't really have that same, um, you know, prestige and, and history in my mind. And I didn't know about all of these things until much more recently. And for me, Rally was that bike that you'd go into Halfords. And so whenever we'd go into Halfords to get something fixed on our car, I would always run upstairs to the bike department and ogle these, you know, amazing looking shiny bikes 
all rally bikes and but we couldn't afford them mm. so you know we would get second you know kind of hand-me-downs or or bikes in the classified section in the newspaper but rally rally was the brand of bikes that kids had and it's quite interesting because when I was racing domestically um the the team rally ran by Sherry, Sherry Pridham um started racing and when they first started I kind of thought it was quite hilarious that Rally would have a top end cycling team because I'd I'd never known that Rally was a top end brand. To me, Rally had been kids' bikes, mm. and I didn't know about the history of the Rally Ti team or Rally Banana. Um, so yeah, it's really it's really fascinating to learn about that. But actually, we have a Rally bike downstairs. Um, my husband's first um, sort of proper proper road bike. Uh, which we've done a lot of adventures on, uh, Rally Airlight 200. It's still in the cellar and um, until pre-pandemic was being used daily as a commuter bike. Well, Lizzie, listen, with that, I'm going to uh, leave you to get on. What's your agenda today? Training ride? Training ride, gym and friends coming over. So busy day. What does that look like? <laughs> what does a training ride before gym look like? I'll probably do three hours today. Um, got some efforts and yeah, then go to the gym and and yeah finish off my legs <laughs> then i've got okay, a hike then, tomorrow which is a nice bit of cross training nice well, and, and then through. after that shakti mat i'm telling you now shakti mat get on the bed of nails listen and it will do wonders for your form well you heard it here first when i go and win all four stages of semana valenciana it'll be thanks to the shakti mat i didn't even have one tom <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome to come around here we'll make it very zen i'll put some i'll put some brian eno on get the shakti mat little candle it's it's the thing it's it really well, me. i look forward to it thanks tom and see you next time namaste, namaste.